You're tuned in to the MTGG Cable Cast, 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 where they cover Magic, the Gathering Finance. All right? You don't know about it? You're tuned in right now and get ready to learn some shit. Buckle your seatbelts and light a blunt and get ready for the MTG Cable Cast, 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 starring Reptar and Thirsty, them onion head motherfuckers. All right, guys, welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal Cast. This is part two of two or three of three, I guess, depending how you look at it. Uh, and our coverage of the Free the Wizards campaign. This is episode two of Diving into the Nitty Gritty. Uh, just a recap of the last episode, we ended off with the E1 acquisition, which was basically we're going to get this entertainment company and try to produce media from non-magic-related stuff. Yep. So today, for those of you following along, we're going to start on page 58, and we'll cover the last half, basically, and then give you our picks. Right. So... Let's get it off the ground. So uh, starting out with page 58, this is basically towards the tail end of the discussion about how Hasbro is failing Watsy with their entertainment divisions. In between where we left off and now, there's some discussion about the Power Rangers purchase. There's just not a lot of, for us to go on. There's one slide about it. But starting in 58, we begin to see what they call non-core bets against primary IPs. So this section basically talks about video games that Watsi has produced based on their core IPs, but not involving the systems at all. So they cite Magic Legends and Magic Spellslingers. Magic Legends was the magic-based Diablo clone that lasted a few months. Spellslingers looks like it lasted two years. I've got no idea what that is. And D&D Dark Alliance was something that just hit and missed on Steam. Apparently. so bad. So basically, Watsi just pushes, or sorry, Hasbro just pushes Watsi and says, well, your core IP is good enough for our brand blueprint. Let's expand, like our blueprint says, into multiple types of media and pump out some more video games besides Duel of the Planeswalkers. Let's get more involved. Uh, nothing about Arena. This has nothing to do with Moto or Arena. Yeah, this, this is specifically the, like, offshoot, video games that to me it's it, it makes sense to do this stuff right oh yeah absolutely. This, this is like we're gonna get normal gamers into our world at least mm -hmm. so that they're arena adjacent because then we can get them on the skinner box of arena yeah but it's not like chandelar from the late 90s or early 2000s it's not that uh, magic the gathering game that came out in 2003 where you can be like the pit fighters yeah from onslaught it's yeah. not those games that really bring a visualization of magic to the players. It's just like weird ways to play video games skinned with magic. And yeah. there are only three sides to this, but they basically all say the same thing, which is just Hasbro squeezed Watsy for resources. All these projects came in under budget. They had such grand hopes for them, and they all fa failed magnificently because this was not a core focus of Watsi, it never should have been. And the summation slide in slide three goes on to say basically that, hey, if these resources had been allocated properly, maybe Arena would be ready for mobile. <laughs> and they cite the, the Seth Manfield uh. tweet, which, you know, obviously, again, they're just going to poke at Watsi where they can and upcycle... Yeah player sentiment but that the tweet is is accurate and there's so much 
that failed about Arena because Hasbro was forcing Watsy to follow this brand blueprint model yeah. and just expand their video game base unnecessarily. Yeah. So, oh, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, and it, it's really, you know, I, I love the Seth tweet, and I love the point above it where they said, look, Magic Legends was marketed as an MMO and it ended up being a hack and slasher with no depth which was the chiefest complaint that I think everyone who played it had. I remember I, I played the alpha, and I was like, okay, if the game, like, if this is an alpha, this is fine. But they didn't add anything from the alpha to the full release. And I was like, okay, this this is yep. bare bones, minimum, we're going to make this work one way or another with minimal investment, and hey, we're just ham-fisting this on there. And it, it was terrible. Yeah, absolutely. And there was some deck building constraint where blue black rogues was effectively the best thing you could be buying, yeah. but all those cards were locked behind the largest paywalls possible, so people immediately fell out of funnel for it and it yeah. just just pushed people out. It was nonsensical gameplay because why not just jam the magic IP on top of you know Diablo or Diablo or with cards. Yeah. Yeah. Like sure I, I it was just it it was bad yeah it was and, and the thing is you know you look at over the years like licensed games obviously aren't always the best you know you you put a shoestring budget and you throw it out there like i don't remember any harry potter game i liked but you also have the lord of the rings games that prove these games can be good and like you mentioned chandelar was i think still besides maybe Microprose magic the best magic video game we've ever had I still play it a decade later or two decades later. That game is awesome. Yeah. And we just, we don't get anything even remotely close to that anymore. And it's, it's tragic. Nope. And uh, after slide 60, we get to 61, which then discusses the AAA GI Joe video game that Hasbro is asking Watsy to develop in a complete misappropriation of funds because Watsy is a video game shop. They can't even make Moto right or Arena. <laughs> no. Why would you trust them with this? No. Ah, and uh, the statement at the top basically is, is the highlight here. We believe Hasbro's board runs Watsy like a cash cow and reinvests its cash flow into funding highly speculative investments. This, the G.I. Joe franchise that we talked about earlier, those movies were funded by Watsy. The E1 and Power Rangers uh, acquisitions partially uh, funded by Watsy. It's just this complete misallocation of funds. And the the next slide, the follow the follow up slide to that is. Now we discuss the fact that this G.I. Joe issue is really symptomatic of something larger, which is just distractions that Hasbro is placing on Watsy because they can, because Watsy makes money. Yeah. With the, their current staffing levels, their current design levels, their current uh, product push to market, all of it makes money. So yeah, we can pull teams, we can understaff teams, we can pull underserved resources away from the core product and just start making video games why not it, it's weird because it almost seems like it's this weird like step sibling relationship where it's like i don't want to see you successful so i'm going to do something to make you unsuccessful 
yeah. and make sure that you can't be successful. I, well, oh, I, I, I just the, these slides to me are some of the best summary of the dysfunction internally since Hasbro and Watsi have merged under the new leadership and executive board. It's it hurts. Yeah, it's weird to say, like, I never really thought about it, but I did know about the, the Transformers card game that eventually came out of Watsi. It played really well. There were some problems during COVID. This isn't the one that was mentioned that was shut down in 2020. I think the one I'm thinking of yeah. might still be going a little bit, um, but maybe it shuttered from a uh, tournament standpoint. The game was released. It did well. Like with Magic, there were problems during COVID of meeting demand. For the second set, third set, overshot demand, and from there the game began to falter. But in the background, things like Judge Academy for Magic Judges, one of the first additional modules that we t were told we were going to get was going to be for Transformers. We're not yeah. WotC employees as judges. We're not contacted by WotC for anything. We are not contracted by WotC for anything, yet we are going to be adding to judge academy a module for transformers a game that hasbro just squeezed watsi for yeah and, and it, it was another one where like okay here's an ip we and honestly so i played both of them i played the one that shuttered in 2020 and i've played the newer one i think the one in 2020 was legitimately one of the most well-designed games since magic it was fun it was great it was a blast and the new one was good, too. But for them to just put it on judges who are volunteers and say, hey, if you want to keep doing this thing, you got to you got to push this for us, too. Yep. I don't like Why? I don't think we would have had to assert. But uh, at first, Watsi didn't said, all right, we are, we don't want this game to be tournament viable. And then players said, well, it's good enough to be tournament tournament viable. So Watsi said, OK. And then basically just, I guess, worked or asked the people who developed judge academy to expand the modules we we haven't gotten it as far as i know but that was going to be the expectation was that i would be in judge academy and able to cert for transformers yeah completely unassociated with anything for watching this just goes this speaks to this last slide uh, 63 which is that the lack of focus has hurt magic players but alta fox just looks at the player base not the judging the judge base because this issue hurts both of us when you yeah. just look at the transformers thing as a whole watsi has pulled finances from everywhere everywhere scrimping and saving essentially to meet hasbro's ridiculous demands for profit which we touched on in episode one it had to come from organized play it had to come from additional product lines it had to come from a drop in paper quality basically anywhere where they could find you know outside of immediately you know lopping heads so to speak they started cutting corners yeah and i i think one of the important things here too is on slide 63 i do share a lot of the sentiment especially when they say we support the decision to believe to, you know to put huey in there but a whole lot more change needs to happen you know, I liked what Huey said when he came out and was like, look, this is like, you know, I, I I'm excited for this, but I can only do so much. Yeah. And if if anyone did not read the letter from the magic pros that was written to Watsi, it is also on slide 63. 
it's incredible and I can't stress enough how much people should read that. It's great yeah, see because it's it's uh, on the right half of that page where they're basically saying, look, we've been looking forward to this. We were excited when you said that this was how the comp league was going to be. We were excited that we had contracts and you, we got nothing. Like you dangled this carrot that this was going to happen and it happened for three months and you were like, yeah, And they specifically mentioned the, what, like the 25% prize purse or whatever it was compared to what it was supposed to be that they announced right before the Magic Esports championship. Yep. Uh, I've got the the link to it. I'll put it in the show notes. But basically it reads, we were led to believe the prize pool is going to be 1 million, most notably in the article, the future of the Magic of Magic Esports published August 14th, 2019 compared to 250,000 into which it has been quietly changed last week. And I I think the telling thing here from that letter is that if Watsi was trying to increase profitability somewhere, there's a way to generate 750k in profit out of nowhere. So it stands to reason that maybe this decision was a Hasbro decision yes. rather than a Watsi decision. And that's why we have what we have in that place. Exactly. It all rose up. And like like we talked about in the first episode, the squeeze. The squeeze was and still is very real for Watsi to find margins and yeah. to meet deadlines and expectations by hook or by crook. And yeah. that is by crook. Quietly a week... Almost literally. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Quietly, a week beforehand, somebody just snuck away with a bag with a dollar sign on it that contained $750,000 and moved it from Watsi to Hasbro. That, that's it. Moving on from there, slide 64, a summary of the board's lack of prioritization. So... This one basically just goes on to talk about the acquisitions that we talked about earlier. Uh, E1, Power Rangers, the G.I. Joe video game, which may or may not be happening, but a request that was at least in the pipeline. And a breakdown in price points. To me, the most interesting thing about this slide especially is the term is not disclosed in how many times it appears. You didn't disclose any of this to your shareholders nope. none of it no this is just like this is why we it. skipped over the power rangers acquisition because there is one slide dedicated to the power rangers acquisition acquisition and it basically goes on to say we're pretty sure it took several years for this to even be profitable but we don't really know because that's estimations based on terms not disclosed yeah cool great yeah awesome thanks thanks for Letting your investors know, guys, like, whatever. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the the other thing is, uh, Backflip was brought in to make mobile video game mobile video games. We thought that would have been what the arena client was going to be. Uh, they were operating negatively. Yeah. For a year or so. Uh, that, but I believe, no, Watsi doesn't own Candy Crush, do they? That's Blizzard. That, yeah, that's Blizzard Blizzard. Activision on Candy Crush. Yeah, so some mobile offering, uh, anything could have been nice. 
but we got yeah. nothing from that. So we got Arena that works on the newest phones and nothing else. Sorry, get wrecked. Yeah, and the downloads are gigs big. So moving on from sixty four, the the next slide so, we want to hit is seventy one, right? Yes, 71, and this is more on the side of, look, these people in charge of Hasbro should not be in charge of Wizards of the Coast, and here is why. And this is specifically, look, you have given yourselves lower targets for earnings compared to other companies in the field, Mattel, Mm -hmm. and you have given better payout for lower earnings, which is obscene because it's literally hey we are stealing money from our investors and putting it in our own pockets is basically what this slide says it's like hey guys you know hasbro ceo comp 1.6 mil zero bonus 3.7 mil in stock awards 6.2 in option rewards yep 16 mil no and and then it gets into the actual minutia of like Here's what our stocks have earned. Here's where we've performed, overperformed, whatever. And everything's rated as underperformed. Uh, Further touching on that is slide 74. And this is another one that they've only sold stock. All right. Imagine you have a company. You believe in this company. You want to be with this company. You think it's amazing. Is it better to expand your money by paying yourself or reinvesting in this company that you believe in so that your growth can compound. You reinvest. Absolutely. It's it's just like buy money. If I have buy money, do I grow faster by giving myself that buy money? Or do I grow faster by using that money to buy cards that I then sell for more money? It compounds way faster when you reinvest mm-hmm. it. And None of the current board members, and this is in big bold on 74, have ever bought shares in the last 10 years. That's insane. In 10 years, you have run this company and you've said, you know what? I don't believe in it enough to put more money in this company. I'm just here to cash a check and do eight and skate. That's I cannot possibly imagine that as a high-ranking corporate executive. I can't imagine that as a small business owner and saying, hey, I'm going to start taking money from this. I don't want it to grow any further with this company. Just leave. I would sell out of a company at that point. It's just not worth it. It it also puts a bad taste in in everyone's mouth because the optics are poor. If all you're doing is the board is selling out, then that tells all your employees down the line that there's no reason to continue to buy in. Yeah. And it makes them question what they're doing and you might not continue to get the quality out of the employees that you've come to expect need or want as well so that's the other big thing you know there are a number of red flags for a sinking ship and we're kind of getting there if all they're doing is selling but if they're slowly selling it's not the worst yeah it's not a short sell or anything like that but it's you know if the best case scenario is you don't believe in the product. Yep. The worst case scenario is real bad. Absolutely. And coming out of the the stock portion of this is basically a diatribe about the brand blueprint and what it means to not just Magic, but or Watsy, but everything under uh, Hasbro 
because we'll get to a real funny slide where you'll see the utility of this term. So we start here and just a straight call out that the, the statements made about Hasbro in regards to the brand blueprint are effectively just a slap in the face, not to people who enjoy Wazi, but just Hasbro shareholders in general. Why? Because the, the yield from this strategy has been underperformance compared to the S&P 500, which is effectively your like mid-water mark for the stock market. If you overperform it, great. Then you're overperforming on the market and you're doing better than the majority of things. If you underperform, then things yep. are real bad because that is just a diverse portfolio. Yeah. And uh, we saw this in a previous slide. We talked about exceptionally poor capital allocation. That talks about the purchasing of E1 and Power Rangers, uh, uh, the mobile development company that Lucky, luck, not Lucky Strikes, which is the only thing I can think of right now, <laughs> or Lucky Brand <laughs> Jeans. I don't know why. Yeah. That's all I got right now at 1230. <laughs> but basically all those purchases that, that performed negatively and and the optics there are that they will continue to do so because terms not disclosed. So before we move on to what's happened under the brand blueprint recently, there there's a document that we want to bring up. I mentioned it last week. Uh, it'll be linked again in the show notes as a quick reminder of what the, the brand blueprint is. And it basically says that it's diversifying the portfolio of the IP leveraging long-term investments made in key growth areas, including gaming across tabletop, digital, and face-to-face, -face, right? So that kind of speaks directly to Hasbro. But at the same time, you can see why they want D&D, &D, which is very physical, to attempt to move into the uh, to a video game space. Why they would take G.I. Joe, which is primarily a, a visual media and... Uh, a toy style media, physical media like that, and make something digital from it, which I don't think we've ever had before, a G.I. Joe game of any sort, even when every IP was on the Nintendo NES, SNES, or Genesis. Like, we never had a G.I. Joe game. Power Rangers already fit the brand blueprint model, and that's why it seemed like a really good acquisition for yep. Hasbro. It already has the the, uh, the the shows that that come along with the IP. It's got all the the toys and clothing. It has video games out, out the wazoo, a number of theatrical releases, and a what is it called for Power Rangers? It's not Lightning. I'll bring this up so people can see. It is Lightning. Okay. Yeah. Hasbro does something called the Lightning Collection for some of their IP and it's basically just high quality I want to say cosplay stuff but I don't know if it's just yeah. Power Rangers line uh, I know there's some G.I. Joe masks in here etc like this stuff already existed uh, prior to has other people were doing it just now we have higher quality right yeah so what happens as Hasbro continues to lean into this well on slide 77 we see Disney pulled their uh their agreement with hasbro they lost the contract for everything disney princess related and it went to their major competitor mattel yep and this slide and the other information 
here basically just go on to say Mattel is kind of floating along. They're seeing growth. It's not great, but because they're not using this dumbass brand blueprint strategy where, you know, you might eventually see a Frozen based video game. Disney said, no, 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 that's not us. Fuck off. And went to Mattel just to go get some Barbie dolls made. Yeah. End of story. Which outperformed whatever Hasbro was doing with the IP, which is absurd. Everything, which, yeah. And slide 78 is pretty heady, but it just goes on to, to show uh, a number of brands and and uh, and markets across the, the last two years, broken down by quarter and the performance in each to show how the brand blueprint is basically failing and has continued to fail. While Mattel has brought in a new CEO and kind of revamped interest in the organization, changing the way things are done, modernizing, Watsy has continued along with this, bland, this brand blueprint model and effectively just is slowly roping in a downward trajectory. And then slide 79, the last one we wanted to touch on in this series is the one I mentioned a couple minutes ago that's really fucking funny and just contains the number of times that Watsy has, not Watsy, sorry, Hasbro has begun to reference brand blueprint across SEC filings yep. and transcripts. <laughs> uh, you love to see it. Yeah, that's... Since embarking and, and on it... And they get into why it's dumb. Yep, since embarking on it in 2010, Hasbro's stock price has underperformed the S&P by over 170%, meaning that while it did see growth, it was not nearly as much as it could have or should have been, which again is at the heart of what AltaFox is getting to because they are a company that is looking to what? Make money. So yeah. even if you're growing and you're growing too, it might be too small for an organization like this. But the point here is that as they embark on this brand blueprint strategy, things are just falling apart around them, around Hasbro. They are just, they're no longer high gainers on the stock market. They're, the slope has slowed. They are buying unnecessary and unlikely to work organizations, properties, yeah. and brands. And they are beginning to possibly hemorrhage brands or contracts that were cash cows before because of this brand blueprint bullshit. And then my my favorite is on 83 where there's the nice summation of why the brand blueprint is dumb and why Watsi is good. And I, you know, look, stop reinvesting in stupid things and have better opportunities. Absolutely. I, like... It is wild to me because you have this opportunity where your product requires continued engagement with your consumers. And it's it's passive engagement. You don't need to release new stuff for them to be engaged. You don't have to actively keep pushing this stuff out. You can literally just iterate on the existing thing. Yep. And it's fine. And Alta Fox's point is look. If Watsi is just allowed to iterate on the thing, they're going to make a ton of money. Mm -hmm. And the the thing to me is I feel like some people, when they look at the Free the Wizards campaign, they think it's like this, 
oh, wizards, you know, these people just like wizards or whatever. No, these are finance people. These are people who are 100% driven by profit. They're one of the largest shareholders. I think they're like top 20 or something like that. Uh, they, they are motivated by we want to make more money for not just us, but all of the other shareholders as much as possible. And like, I highly encourage everyone to go through this, you know, hundred some odd page document. Absolutely. Yeah. And actually read everything because there's a lot of salient points in here. They're rooted in logic and reason. And yes, sometimes their information sources are ridiculous, but that's the point is that they should just know this stuff because Hasbro should just share it. Yeah. Terms not disclosed. It's dumb. Yeah, term, terms not disclosed. The the more we we discuss this and the more I think about Altafox and the, the direction of Hasbro, the more it kind of collides with one of my other hobbies, which is attempting to build out the most complete collection of like on card Ninja Turtle characters that everybody can recognize. So it's yeah. like when you think of the show or the video game or the the comics, these are the characters that, that come to mind and the it's interesting. The the show premieres in nineteen eighty eight and the first ten figures are released. The first season is only six episodes. After that, production does nothing but crank to the point where they have to have multiple animation studios and multiple yep. voice acting studios working on the show to meet demand. So yep. animation looks different from episode to episode and voices are different from episode to episode. And I don't recommend you go back and watch anything more than the first season. But if you begin looking up from the original Ninja Turtles series, look at any card any action figure card from 1990 1991 or 1992 and this is a great example of a company uh who was making them playmates yeah that was basically asked to jump the shark and find profits wherever they could just churn out more products to make more profit and you begin seeing the most ridiculous things being made and i don't mean like the talking turtles or the ones that like you wind up and they have an action, but just characters that don't make sense. Yeah. I'm pretty sure there is some kind of evil pizza guy in there. And I don't remember if it was like a guy that made pizzas or a guy that was made of pizza a la Spaceballs. I believe he was made of pizza. There was also the like 24 karat gold robot turtle or yep. something that was like all blocky and just clearly just a literal cash grab there were for no reason militarized zoo animals there was a giraffe and a gorilla that i remember yeah and this is a direction that watsi could end up going because hasbro says we need more from you yeah we need more money to take and buy more more licenses more ips that fit our our brand blueprint because yeah. we think it'll work and you're currently making money. Everything else is stagnant or not making enough. So like, churn it out. Here we go. 
And that's kind of been my fear with some of the product that Wasi's been pushing. The secret layer stuff is an easy way to do that, but at the same time, it's an art layer on top of the game, so it's a little different than just asking them to jump the shark. But the video games are a good look into that <clears throat> yep. with Legends and everything else that's been going on with Wasi video game-wise that isn't related to the core product. And it's this kind of mismanagement and this kind of this kind of like misguided understanding of what you have in front of you that could lead Hasbro to just strangle the life out of Watsy. Yeah. Like the Ninja Turtle toys and like all the other toy lines that did the same thing were, were completely different. That was just playmates churning out plastic, but playmates had yeah. so many different IPs running at that time. It didn't matter when one toppled because there were three more coming down the pipe, but what Hasbro only has Watsy that's really making money. If that topples, like that, I don't want to say that's it for Hasbro. They can definitely survive with what they're doing, but it's a huge hit, huge, yeah. huge hit, and that's why this is so important. Without a lot of this pressure, Watsy can really thrive and survive. And the more you read through this document, you're going to read a lot of quotes from a lot of people that work there, and it just seems like Hasbro is like slowly strangling the life out of Watsy. Like from top to bottom. Yeah, it's. And the thing that concerns me about that, because that that analogy is spot on, is the crash of the 90s in collectibles that took basically 30 years to see a recovery on because we're of an age where we have disposable income and we want to relive our childhood. Fine. Uh that's great with licensed IPs that's not great with something that requires you to play it and have utility which is what magic is absolutely it doesn't recover I I do not think it recovers in the same way Uh, you know sure it looks nice on a shelf but the value of magic is directly tied to utility Sure, there's an element of collectability there in high end, but without the exposure, because not every kid played Magic. Every kid played Ninja Turtles and watched Ninja Turtles. Yeah. It, it's just, it's not there. That's horrifying. And it's it's something we're kind of seeing with Secret Layers. We're seeing it with third year, second year, whatever of spoiler season. We're seeing it where the same set gets released three times in the same quarter with Crimson Bow, Midnight Hunt, and Double Feature. Mm-hmm. We're starting to see that, like, the start of that Playmates movement, where you do have all those studios working on just cranking out as much as possible. And that's, like, the scariest thing to me about what's been happening the last couple of years is, you know, sky is falling, magic's dying, whatever. Intentionally or not, the design is getting to the point where it's like, guys, you got to slow down. But, hey. Yep. And all, all we can do is arm you enough to make your own decisions and hold your own opinions and this document is a great place to start yeah you ready for picks let's do it all right so you can explain the pick you've been sitting on for two weeks first (laughs) all right look guys i'm gonna be honest okay i still believe in freeing the political prisoner i still think splinter twin is fine and should be unbanned I think it's time to admit this is not happening. It's not. It's it's my pick. Card's great. All right. It's 
you know what? I'm going to gather myself for a moment because I just admitted out loud on a recorded episode that Splinter Twin is not getting unbanned. All right, I'm good. This card's great. We know what it does. Yeah. It's a known entity. We know about the price trajectory of this card. Every time there's a BNR, it surges a little bit. I'm getting into this for the long term. So this is an EDH card. We know that. Yeah. It's yeah. not going to be printed in a Modern Masters set again. It's not going to be printed in an Ultimate Masters set again. This effect lives in Commander decks. I don't think we get this reprinted for a long time. I'm comfortable if I did not have about 70 copies currently. I would be comfortable getting up to like 20 to 30 of these and sitting on them for a year or two. If you look at the price stocks graph on MTG stocks, obviously we have when it was legal and modern, it was all over the place. We see these little surges and we see a surge last year when everyone was certain it was going to get banned and low went from like five bucks to 15 or unbanned. Well, then yeah. low, or yeah, unbanned. Sorry. And then we sat around 10 for a while, which is where we're still at. And we're kind of on a dip right now. This is a 20 to $30 card. I think in a year easily be it because we see surges in unbanning and restriction announcements where they're like, oh, this is the time, this is the time, and it's just not, and the floor resets, or just natural adoption in EDH, because we continually get cards that kind of abuse this effect along with Kiki Jiki. We get, you know, what was it, Midnight Bell Ringer or whatever, the untap all other creatures when it comes into play. Yeah. We keep getting cards that iterate with this over and over, and I think it's only a matter of time before this just, through progression and play in EDH, sees that 20 to $30 price tag, which I think is appropriate for this. I don't think we get it reprinted when it's at 20 to $30. And the nice thing is, there actually is a decent supply of this, and obviously we had a list copy come out. Yeah. Was it Kaldheim? I don't know, man. I, I, I don't remember. But that's that's likely the only reprint we're going to see for a long time. I, I just think this is incredibly good. It slides into your casual decks. It slides into your competitive decks. It hits everything. And knowing that we can, worst case scenario, take advantage of a surge whenever there's you know a ban or restricted announcement, and if you look at, you know, the market and everything, it clearly reflects times where the ban and restricted announcements are. I just think it's a good long-term fit. And I think that, look, we need to admit it's probably not going to happen in modern. Modern's not going to be the financial driver for this card. No. If it does get unbanned, hallelujah, great, we're millionaires. I don't think it happens. I think EDH long-term is where this card is going to sit. This is a pick it up for 10 bucks one to two hundred dollars into the card i'm comfortable doing that throwing them in a box and sitting on them that's what i've been doing for years i just think it's a solid long-term play because these types of effects it's just kiki jiki and splinter twin yep we haven't had it since because it's insane and it's so easy to break in half that they're not going to do it again i hope we'll see we'll see Hasbro may make them. Who knows? Yeah, I was just taking a look on Rec to see exactly what plays this, because I was thinking about it. I'm like, okay, it's effectively a team or colored card because it co it combos with um, the creature from Origins, the Uncommon, that I can't think of off the top of my head, the Simic, yeah. the Simic creature, right? Yeah. It, oh, actually, it, oh, it's four colors because of Resto Angel and, and Midnight Bell Ringer. So what is 
what do we see on rec and in all honesty we see it all over the place on rec so it's not like we have <clears throat> anything dedicated that's just going to come in and blow the doors off but if you want to be like as open as possible it slides into Riku pretty well obviously Perforos got out of the forge because that's just an instant kill and then you have some of the stuff that just plays into the color scheme and that isn't Kiki Jiki yeah. and allows you to just play the rest of the cards that go with it and I think the more time goes on and the more value creatures we get like stuff like this just becomes more palatable at the table you don't have to combo off with this if you don't want to oh. there are so many other things you can do and I think it really is that kind of value engine that works in its favor it's like progenitor mimic progenitor mimic yeah. is not an overpowering card if you're not going to combo with it i mean yeah you could just build a deck around cloning your world spine worm but that is what it is you know mono red splinter twin is basically just looking to do two things cast kiki jiki from your command zone and follow it up with splinter twin that that's kind of what those red decks are trying to do. So it's just like, yeah, a little bit of variety. What are you looking for for a push? And I think it really is attribution over time, or attrition over time, just a shrinking yeah. supply. And a continued focus on creatures that do things when they enter the battlefield that just accrue value in, in some way, shape, or form. We just got in um, Neon Dynasty, Kiki-Jiki as a saga. Right? Yeah. So... And I you know, looking at EDH rec, one of the other interesting things is speaking of attribution over time, when you look at the generals that this is most common in, Akoria, Kaldheim, C20, yeah. C19, it's recent stuff. To me, that says as more stuff comes out, this will see more adoption. Yeah, exactly. Which leads to a long-term hold like you're talking about. It becomes a long-term plan. I think overall it becomes a nice long-term look. Cards like this yep. have a way of just sneaking up on people and mm -hmm. all of a sudden becoming valuable because now everybody's playing it. It was cheap enough. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, the numbers you gave are fairly realistic for something like this in the long term, especially if it never sees a reprint again, which is not something I thought about because I remember a time where it was legal and then in a reprint sent and then not legal anymore. And it just slips my yeah. mind that they don't print banned, modern banned cards in modern Masters sets and they generally speaking try to stay away from banned cards in other formats too when they do these reprint yeah. sets so yeah it is very unlikely we'll see Splinter Twin outside of anything more than a Commander product maybe which even seems a little dicey at an $11 price tag when it's not a land but who knows Yeah, weirder things have happened but yeah, I like the pick, and I am very sad that we will not see Splinter Twin come back in Modern. We can pour one out for it and Luris later. In the meantime, though, Gib back to Monkey. Yeah. Gib sword to Monkey, which is where we're headed next. So for me, I, this might be my last Modern Horizons 2 pick. I don't really know where we are. I got a couple more on my list, but if they jump too high in the, the next couple of weeks you might skip them but sword and hearth and home is the card on today's hit parade I, i've had this on my list now for about five months i added it in uh october when card kingdom was buying none at no dollars and there were 353 unique prices on tcg player uh with a market of about 11 dollars, and we can see that you know this has basically done nothing but rope with a, a little blip 
back in uh, it's like the end of December 2021 into January 2022. So what are we looking at now? Well, Card Kingdom was buying zero when I started this write-up. They were buying 98 at $7. Now they're buying 91 at 650 So it seems that that number is just going to keep ticking down as they get what they need because demand is there, but it's not fervent. So it's not just like enough to keep that price rock solid. But again, as this card dries up, like with the other Modern Horizons 2 picks, uh, two picks that I've made, I do expect this price to just rock it. So what does this card do? Well, it's the green white sword. It is not the last sword to be printed. It is the second or the third to last sword to be printed. Uh, so plus two, plus two, protection for green and white. Now the interesting part is the triggered. That's why I picked it. So when the equipped creature deals combat damage to a player, exile up to one target creature you own, then search your library for a basic land card. Put both cards onto the battlefield under your control, then shuffle. So it's basically a sort of the animus trigger when you deal combat yeah. damage and an ephemery when you deal damage. So it's very interesting what you can do with this. That's why I like it, because there's a ton of upside here, a ton of opportunity. I don't think this has really been explored. <clears throat> as far as this goes within, ED, uh, within Commander as a format, like... You know, it, this the playability on this is extremely high as the quote-unquote green half is akin to the Sword of the Animist, but with a must-connect clause, and the white half, again, is uh, ephemerate, but it works well with anything with ETB triggers. That's what we want to do, right? We just talked about that with Splinter Twin, and now we're back on this value train. So this makes cards like Sol and Simulacrum really shine. You know, that card is super dirty, but when you can flicker it in and out and get a basic land at the same time, that, that's a ton. So yeah. this isn't speaking to the portion of the format dedicated to equipment-based Voltron decks that look for efficient, powerful options. This is like what, we, what we're looking at for the green and white triggers. This is just what it does. Yep. As far as this goes within the format, it's not like Watsi isn't making any less creatures with above-the-rate ETB triggers anytime soon. So the white half of this card is just going to get ridiculous over time. Moreover, this plays into a number of other themes ranging from aggressively slanted equipment-based decks to monocolor decks that have a hard time ramping, namely red and white, to landfall-based strategies, which that one I found kind of interesting, but again, that and decks that want to ramp can both play sort of the Animus as well, so you get a double up on that. And something interesting I did this time is I actually went through all the swords, all eight of them, <clears throat> yeah, and went through uh, and just check decks. So we start out with body and mind, the the blue green one, eight thousand decks. War and peace, eight point five. Sinew and steel, that's the red and black one from Modern Horizons one, eleven point five. Light and shadow, this is the blue white one. This is the proliferate and I can't remember one, twelve point four. Truth and justice is fifteen point. Oh, sorry. Uh, Light and Shadow is the the black-white one, duh. That's the yeah. Healing Salve and uh, Raise Dead. That's in 12.4. Truth and Justice is the blue-white one. That's the Proliferate. That's 15.8 yeah. decks. Yep. Fire and Ice, blue-red, 18.8. Feast and Famine, 31,000 decks. Now, the last sword on this list is Sword of the Animist, 60,000 decks. Hearth and Home is in 17.5. 17,500 
500 decks, according to EDH Rec. Now it's up to 18,300. That makes it the third most popular sword out of all That's eight. And it is only $11. So there's a lot of overlap between the very aggressively slanted swords like Feast and Famine and Fire Ice and Hearth and Home. However, as Hearth and Home plays to a number of other themes unavailable to the other two most popular swords, according to Rec, I expect the reach of this card to continue to expand and see more overlap with Sword of the Animist, which we're not really seeing yet. Not to the, not to full adoption. I don't think we're even re, we've even really begun to explore the full range and potential of Sword of Hearth and Home. And I did not expect to for this sword to come in third at at this price point. And I would never have guessed nope, because I'm always looking at the more aggressive stuff: Feast and Famine, uh, Fire and Ice, and. I guess, ironically, Sinew and Steel, which I find aggressive because the removal trigger is really good. Yeah, it is. Uh, so, for a timeline on this, Sword of Truth and Justice released in Modern Horizons 1 in June 2019, tanks to about $15 and sits there for almost a year before ticking up with the release of Akoria 11 months later. The proliferate portion of the sword gets a decent boon with the advent of keyword tokens and other shenanigans in that set. So cherry right sort of cited in sinew and steel also in modern horizons one tanks all the way to eight dollars and eventually sees a floor of eleven dollars in november of 2020 16 months later releasing in may 2021 and seeing a solid floor in december 2021 five months later i believe we're on the cusp of the eventual resurgence in price as we head into the spring and summer with modern horizons 2 heading out of stock a waning supply on the open market and continued interest basically tells me I would expect that in the next six months we'll see this card start its journey like Sword of Truth and Justice heading into Commander Legends 2 and Double Masters. So, as I mentioned, this is the third most popular sword from the Sword of X and Y cycle, but the cheapest by a wide margin. Uh, it's $11 compared to $14 for Body of Mind and War and Peace, which are the two least popular swords. Sino and Steel, however, in approximately 50% more decks than either of the aforementioned cards, sits at $10 market. So that's really the only standout. Sino and Steel is like the only the only other sword at this level that's this cheap. It's these two: Sino and Steel, Hearth and Home. And I think it's because both people under sorry, both swords are underestimated. Yeah. So I. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to jump on a reprint equity bid. You hit it. Yeah. Yeah. That's yep. But just unexplored potential the reprint equity was another weird beard or weird beer so newer supplemental swords seem to have little to no reprint equity so this is everything from scars of mirrodin forward i believe when presented with the opportunity to reprint the modern horizons one swords and modern horizons two they opted and said to create one new sword it appears that the goal is to finish the full cycle before reprinting the newer horizons swords and again the scar swords Right now, we have eight color pairs. The two we are missing, for those that are curious, are Gruel and Demir. That's it. Those two. Demir better be discard draw. I mean, I would assume so. We've seen the Darksteel swords not only in modern Master sets, but alongside the three Scars of Mirrodin swords and Double Masters. Double Masters had six swords in it. I didn't realize that. I thought it was just the, uh, the original... The originals... So do I think we'll get Sword of Hearth and Home and Double Masters too? No. 
that re that reprint felt like Watsi reeling, leaning into the double a little too hard in an attempt to sell packs for a master set they were unsure of. Because what sold the original modern master sets? Tarmogoyf, Vendelian Click, the Swords, and Vidalcan Shackles. Bob. Yep. That was it. Those were the money cards. And they were all mythics in that set, I believe. Vidalcan Shackles might have been a rare. Oh, and Aether Vial. But that's it. Yeah. Like, those eight or so cards just put pressure on people to buy packs. So I really don't think yeah. we're going to see this card get printed anytime soon in Modern Masters. Sorry, uh, Double Masters 2 or Commander Masters 2 because that's not what that set's about. That set's about making another Jeweled Lotus, not printing Sword yep. of Hearth and Home or reprinting that. Yeah, and I think the, you know, getting getting five of them out of that set uh, says to me, we're going to wait until we finish the cycle to do them again. Yep only way that i see them not doing that is if we get like masterpieces because we did get the swords as masterpieces yeah. in kaladesh yeah. but that is not going to be a reprint that affects the pricing of the card because that's just a completely new card exactly that's right like it's it's such a small run it's such a high-end chase item that it just doesn't yeah matter. that's uh we had masterpieces and judge promos for fire nice light and shadow feast and famine yeah and there's and i think also to reprint equity the ones that they seem more keen to reprint are the ones that see constructed play yes. your sort of light and shadow sort of fire and ice jit maybe in some world yeah I... but they're not very focused on like we want to reprint sort of law and order or anything like that. That's just, Hey, we're comfortable with these out there. We don't feel the yeah. need to do that thematically. And I don't see them reprinting because unless it's a set like double masters, you're taking up five rare or mythic slots with equipment. Mm -hmm. And I just don't see that happening until we've at least finished the cycle and they can say all right we're reprinting the second five now in this double masters. exactly two points the uh, in reverse order exactly i i i think there is too much on watsi's part leaning into the double aspect or the two aspect of double masters and the swords just happened quote unquote to fit into that because it was x and y two things cool like yeah. They could have put Twin Flame in there, because two. Herp derp. But the other point I wanted to make, and I had this written up, I just couldn't figure out a good way to put it in here, so I'm glad that uh, your point can talk about, or reach back to this. There's this weird part about the Dark Steel Swords, Fire and Ice and Light and Shadow, and it's that much like Command, uh, Commander Legend, no, Jumpstart, product was destroyed inadvertently. Yeah with dark steel that's why it was so rare and the and ravager cost so much not just because that deck was nuts but because there's so little product available and in particular it feels like those watsi's still playing off a of mea culpa for that by yeah. taking every opportunity to reprint fire and ice and light and shadow just to try and get it just to get quantity out there enough to the point where they feel good with what's been released based on, as you mentioned, constructed demand. Or in the case of Light and Shadow, casual demand. Yeah. But moving on to buy quantity. Uh, personally, I have somewhere in the neighborhood of about six of these spread between set, alt art, and retro fame. I was just buying any that I found locally, 
but if I were to focus on one version, it would have been the set, which is the version that I've been talking about the, today. It's the most accessible and the cheapest, appealing to the widest audience. And I like to keep one to two extra playsets of swords around as trade bait for a few years after release, which means I'm in the market for another six or so, but I wouldn't go past that. There are better places to put your money for faster returns, so taking timeline into consideration, I don't like stacking these to the ceiling. That that's yeah. That's really it. If I just had infinite money to throw out things, I would absolutely stack this to the ceiling and then I'd go after Sinu and Steel. Yeah. And I, I think these are the price on both of these cards is emblematic of the fact that people just have not explored them enough. But today we're talking about Hearth and Home. Yeah, and I, I think to me the thing is I I think your touch of like I keep a playset or two is perfect in terms of quantity because nobody wants more than one of these, right? Yeah. You don't run more than one of these in a nope. deck. It's I've got a few EDH decks worth. Or I've got a few legacy decks worth. It doesn't matter because you're Stoneforge mysticing the card anyway. Exactly. The the only time people were playing swords in standard reliably was when not even Stoneforge Mystic was in standard. Uh, yeah, it was there for a hot minute because it was banned afterwards. It was Feast and Famine, and then after Stoneforge yeah. Mystic was banned and then rotated, War and Peace came in and basically shook things up a little bit. But it was still one of yeah. You ran yeah. them both because, like you said, multiples aren't great, and you'd rather spread your protections and then play another one or two in the sideboard in case you needed it for a specific matchup. So yeah, exactly. Constructed players and EDH players are going to be interested in the same number of these cards. Yep. Your your EDH playset is the same as your constructed yep. playset. You just need Exactly. It's the perfect number. Uh, but I think that's going to cover it for this week. We might talk a little more Alta Fox next week. There was a Q&A done, but they just seem like real softballs to the board members yeah. that don't include John Finkel. Uh, if there's anything worthwhile there, we might extend the discussion. But for now, I think this is going to be it until something like really groundbreaking happens. But a lot of this is being kept kind of on the down low. So if you're interested and you do want to keep up with this, it is really just checking their website because they are moving things around. They're adding new infographics. They're adding additional PDFs to the website to help explain. And Business Insider has been doing a good job kind of keeping up with this because it's, as one would expect, their job. So if yeah. you are interested, the information is out there despite the fact that like the magic social sphere has just kind of like kicked it out. Yeah. but It's there. It's worth yeah. reading. For MTG Cabalcast, I am at Halt. I am Reptar on Twitter. You are... At Thursday, so we'll see you next week.